Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a corporate reporter in Houston, uh, working from home like most everyone else these days. So apologies ahead of time for any unexpected background noise. But uh, joining me on the line and also working from home are my colleagues on the corporate team, including the new executive editor of Energy Intelligence and current Houston bureau chief, Noah Brenner. Hey, Noah. Hi, Luke. And we've also got Dion Doherty, who leads our coverage of U.S. independence in the Permian Basin on the line. Hey, Dion. Hey, Luke. So today we will be talking about the U.S. independence and what they are doing to try to get through what's turning into a truly unprecedented and sudden downturn for really the entire oil industry, given the current price of oil and, of course, the global demand destruction being wrought by the coronavirus pandemic. So Noah, let's just start with you and uh, maybe maybe give us a sense of what we're seeing on a global or a macro level in terms of how the industry is responding to what's really turning into a dire situation for companies of all sizes. Um, and then maybe what that means broadly for future supplies of crude. Sure. I mean, and I think you've, you've, really hit the nail on the head when you say a, a dire situation and, and that it is rapidly evolving. So what we've seen so far from you know, the Western oil companies and, and corporates uh, across the, the energy sector has been really a sort of a, a two-tiered or even a three-tiered system of, of response or really of cutting their, their spending. And so they've started out, you know, oftentimes with maybe it was a, about a 20% cut um, and you know, stopping various discretionary programs, say share buybacks, things like that. And then as to, we've seen the magnitude of the demand destruction, you know, not only immediately, but also what's predicted as, as more and more people are, are locked down in their homes, um, they've come back with further cuts. And so really what we've seen now is, is anywhere from a 30% to as much as a 50% cut to the capital spending budgets of, of most companies really kind of across the board. Um, this has been you know, most accentuated, I think, in the U.S., where you do have, uh, you know, the the short cycle shale is is easier to kind of turn off and on. Um, but I mean, we're also seeing companies in, in the offshore cutting back and and uh, and even shutting in. And I think really that's you know that shut in um, action is is sort of coming in in the next set of of. Um, next portion of this plan. And so, you know, what that means for, for future supplies, I mean, if we're just talking about the near-term future, you know, we're going to see uh, U.S. oil production begin to decline. Uh, it really is probably declining already. And for future supplies, I mean, we'll, we predict it not only declining from lack of investment, but, but physical shut-ins of, say, as much as 500,000 barrels a day, um, that it's just no longer economic and companies can't afford to continue to keep those wells flowing. Um, and then more broadly, you know, a lot of companies have messaged that they are going to, to be able to hold production, you know, relatively flat on an average basis. Um, but that's really one, not going to be the case, uh, as, as we see the need for, for these types of cuts. And, and two, that points to exit to exit declines just because we had growth, um, last year. And, and it's setting up for an even more kind of dire 2021 um, from a production standpoint, because the lack of investment uh, this year is going to you know, really come to full force uh, next year is, is when we'll really start to see things. Okay, so um, moving into the U.S., uh, Dion, you, you know, U.S. Shale kind of made its name as a short cycle source of supply that can be 
ramped up and down relatively easy. So it's not too surprising that the independent shale producers were among the first in the industry to announce some of these CapEx cuts um, just a couple long weeks ago. Um, but we were already starting to see that, you know, like Noah was saying, kind of that second shoe drop with announcements of further spending and production cuts, uh, as Devin just outlined this week. Uh, so Dion, you've been tracking the announcements of these cuts. So as of right now, at the end of March, where do we stand? And is this is this really just the beginning? Right. It is just the beginning. Um, you know, the Monday after Saudi said they were going to flood the market and the the extent of the COVID-19 really started to hit home in Europe and the U.S., um, Diamondback and Parsley were announcing cuts of upward of 20 percent. They've both been back at the table. Um, today, uh, we're standing at cuts to 2020 CapEx of $35.2 billion. Now, that does not include uh, BP, which is sort of given, a, you know, we could cut up to 20%, which would be another $3 billion, um, or Exxon. If they were to cut around 20% of their $33 billion budget, that's a $6 billion. So those companies right there, added to what we have now, would be almost $50 billion in cuts. Um, and that's including 49 companies. Wow. Yeah. And um, and four companies that I can think of off the top of my head have already been, you know, back at the table to make more. We've talked about um, uh, Diamondback and Parsley. Oxy's been back. Um, Devon, as you mentioned, has been back. Uh, we're, we can certainly expect to see more. The average was, you know, 25 to 33 percent, I think. There's going to be a lot more cuts coming down the road. That's not enough. Mm-hmm. So uh, you mentioned some of the super majors there, but Noah, the these the, the biggest companies uh, that your Exxon's and BP's and and the like uh, have been a little bit less forthcoming as far as the specifics on what their plans are in terms of you know cutting cutting back on tight oil. Uh, Chevron has given some guidance um, on their thinking, but Exxon most notably, um, but uh, also Shell and BP have really not tip their hand as far as what we should expect from their activity levels in the Permian and elsewhere. Uh, so do you have a sense of what we should expect and, and I guess what's taking them so long? Sure. I mean, you know, what's taking them so long is they're, they're incredibly large, complex organizations and, and, you know, making, um, it, it's hard enough to plan a capital budget in a, in a normal year. It's a process that takes them, you know, multiple months and trying to put the brakes on it and, and change that budget, you know, over the course of, to respond to a situation that's changing on a daily basis is incredibly difficult. Uh, as you said, you know, we have seen some more granular guidance from Chevron, particularly they peeled out about 50% of their spending in the Permian Basin, which is really notable, uh, both for the fact that the Permian Basin is probably, it's, I think, probably undoubtedly their lowest cost asset, uh, and as well that it is key to Chevron's entire corporate strategy. And so, you know, seeing a cut of that magnitude from Chevron in the Permian is really notable. Now, Exxon, we have not heard from. They've uh, said that they were uh, working on capital spending cuts. They do have plans to, to trim back. You know, prior to this, at their analyst day at the beginning of March, uh, Exxon did mention that they could cut their Permian rig count by 20%. Uh, that was in the face of sort of weakening demand when uh, coronavirus was still really uh, contained. To, the impacts were maybe contained to China at that time. Um, but at the same point, they messaged that that was, you know, as much due to their own sort of efficiency gains and they would still be able to, to produce, uh, you know, a significant amount of growth from the Permian at that time. You know, I don't think anybody is looking at growth from the Permian now. 
And so, you know, we would expect uh, to see a further cut there. I think there is a good um, a good chance that a significant part of Exxon's cuts will come from the short cycle Permian, but you know, we're, we're going to have to see sort of, and it'll be interesting to see the differences between Exxon and Chevron there. Um, Shell has put out its own spending cuts. It did not uh, give a lot of detail, uh, really any detail around uh, specific U.S. cuts. And then BP is, to me, maybe one of the more interesting ones. Uh, again, you know, outgoing CFO Brian Gilvery had mentioned that they potentially could cut 20% from their budget. But at the same point, BP is taking over these BHP uh, assets that it acquired uh, last year and, you know, needs to, to kind of find its feet in the Permian Basin. And so we have seen it ramp up its rig count over the past maybe six months or so. And it's kind of a question of, you know, do they think that the most prudent thing to do is, is to cut there or will they kind of try to keep that momentum going or at least build a sort of a core shale competency um, and supply chain in the Permian, uh, even in the face of incredibly low oil prices? You know, my initial gut feeling would be that they they would see this short cycle, you know, the short cycle Permian as an opportunity to pare back. But, um, you know, they do need to. You know, they do need to find a, kind of find their feet there. And so I think it's it for them, it's maybe a little bit more of a, of a difficult decision. Hmm. Well, uh, clearly something has to give at some point. I mean, we're, we're <laughs> I haven't actually checked, checked the WTI price in the last couple hours, but, you know, very recently we we're down under $20 and the storage is nearing capacity and the in, in basin physical pricing is just, is just shocking right now. Um, totally unsustainable. Um, so even for the lowest cost producers. Uh, so Dion, I mean, this has people talking about some really sort of outside the box solutions, including uh, the Texas Railroad Commission, the, the top uh, oil regulator in Texas, um, you know, considering stepping in to start rationing production, similar to what they did in Alberta last year to, um, you know, boost prices um, with with some success. And we've just heard uh, that Parsley Energy and Pioneer, two of the biggest Permian producers have, or independent Permian producers, have requested uh, an emergency meeting with the Railroad Commission to discuss this very thing. So do you think that this is something that we could actually see in Texas, home to some of the country's biggest free market cheerleaders? Oh, that's a loaded question right there, Luke. Um, hmm. One key uh, difference between Texas and, and what the Railroad Commission, what a Railroad Commissioner is talking about doing and what happened in Alberta um, is that Alberta acted uh, you know, with the, the force of a government entity making a decision and moving forward. Uh, and with the Railroad Commission situation, we have a lame duck politician. He was, uh, Ryan Sitton was defeated in his primary. So after November, he will no longer be a member of the Railroad Commission, um, who is basically talking a lot um, and then tweeting about it, frankly. Um, the other two commissioners, it's my understanding, are not in favor of, of uh, going back to prorating um, production. And this is something that goes back, uh, it, it kind of hit the legislature in its final form in the 30s, where the Railroad Commission would say how much oil could be produced on a lease, on, on a given lease, on a given day. Um, and I don't really get the impression um, from my conversations that maybe anybody but uh, Parsley and Pioneer want to go back to those days. Um, Texas is a whole other country. And they, uh, I, I guess Ryan Sitton wants to put it out there. Um, and it, you're right. I mean, Texas 
lawmakers, um, Texans in general, like to beat their chest about being very free market. But if this were to move forward, um, there would be an existential crisis, at least if they're paying attention, because um, Texas lawmakers have been talking about free market um, forever. I mean, it, it, Texas is based on the free market system. You can go to any Rotary Club, um, any sort of political event, and they tout that is the key difference between them and the Democrats, them and the rest. Uh, so yeah, that that would be enormous. Now, all of that said, it, you know, does hypocrisy matter anymore in politics? <laughs> you know, that, that, that remains to be seen. Um, whether it's likely, though, the next meeting that the Railroad Commission has on their schedule is April 21st. Uh, for this kind of thing to move forward at all, and it would take more than just the Railroad Commission deciding to do it, um, all three commissioners would have to agree, or at least two of them would have to agree. They don't meet again until April 21st. An emergency meeting, I am not sure what the protocol would be on that, but given that the chairman isn't interested in this idea, nor is Christy Craddock, pulling an emergency meeting together might be difficult. Hmm. Well, and I think it'll be interesting to see just the production response that we see by that period. Um, you know, I think right now shale, both investment as, as well as the potential even for, for shut-ins of, of some high-cost production, whether that's shale or, or otherwise, uh, especially in Texas where you do have higher-cost conventional, um, you know, is, is going to surprise people. Um, we've seen the shale industry respond in a way that, that we really haven't before. And we are not only bumping into sort of economic considerations, but also physical ones as there just isn't without a, without a strong refinery run rates, we're just not seeing enough, um, enough place to put crude, uh, whether that's in storage or whether that's in the market. Hmm. And what about this idea of Texas or the U S joining up with OPEC to try to gain some control over global pricing? Is that, I mean, is that even a serious suggestion at this point? Well, I mean, this is a fascinating um, point, actually, because the Railroad Commission used to be OPEC. The uh, Venezuelan oil minister got the idea for OPEC, the, the co-founder of OPEC from Venezuela, got the idea for OPEC from being in exile in Texas and watching how the Railroad Commission functioned back in the late 60s. Um, but no, I mean, Texas accounts for what, five, maybe maybe six on a good day, uh, million barrels out of the 13 million barrels a day that the U.S. produces. Um, I'm not sure that would make a huge impact uh, for OPEC to really want to come to the table with, you know, Ryan sitting at all. And I think the other interesting thing to consider in that is that, um, you know, the, the question's kind of predicated on the idea that, that OPEC is going to try to gain some control over global pricing. And I think, I mean, in the face of, of intense and incredible demand destruction, I think there is a realization that, you know, you can't cut 10 million barrels a day to try to balance this market out, and it might take that or more. Um, and so, you know, there just isn't a supply side response to what is essentially a, a demand side crisis at this point. Um, I think maybe if OPEC thought that, you know, if, if we were able to look and say, okay, we're, you know, 1.5 million barrels away from market balance, there might be more, um, you know, more impetus and, and more strength behind uh, some move for for the U.S. to work with with other producers. But I think those other producers realize, uh, and, and you know, Russia included, um, that that this isn't a market that can be managed. Mm. 
Well, yeah, it's also probably worth noting just quickly that the Alberta premier, Jason Kenney, uh, did kind of float the idea of uh, <laughs> joining any such partnership if one were to emerge, um, getting Alberta in there as well. But it uh, sounds like that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. But uh, just to wrap up, um, and I'll throw this to either one of you, uh, the companies that emerge on the other side of this are likely to be the ones who were fairly well hedged uh, ahead of time. So any sense of kind of who these companies are and how they have fared so far? Oh, well, um, interestingly, I mean, Pioneer is is certainly one of them. Uh, in fact, right as all of this started to go down, they added more hedges before prices got down to 20 and, and less. Um, but on average, they're around 43% of the oil for 2020 is, is covered by a hedge. 2021, it gets pretty dicey, though. And if they were not hedged before prices really hit bottom, uh, there's nothing companies can do to protect their barrels. Hmm. So is there something that, you know, companies have learned about the best way to approach hedging, I guess, in the future, now or in the future? Uh, I mean, is there a blueprint for a path out through hedging? I, th- I think it's it's an interesting question. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I, I'm wondering if if larger companies might see more utility in hedging just to, you know, to guarantee some of those cash flows. It's tough though. I mean, from a, you know, a veteran oil executive standpoint, they're going to look at this and see underinvestment for potentially two, two years, maybe. Um, And, you know, they're going to be looking at this potential for upside if demand does rebound. And so I think making that hedging decision is going to be difficult. Uh, I think companies also, you know, I'll be interested to see how effective those hedges are. Um, you know, we've seen various hedge me- hedging mechanisms used, uh, certain contracts that that actually aren't providing quite as much downside protection as we thought. I mean, basically, it's they provided some downside protection, but not for a, a real you know kind of black swan scenario like this. And we are also seeing, um, you know, as you mentioned, in basin pricing, whether that's you know WTI priced in Midland. Uh, or some of, you know, uh, whether it's or priced in Clearbrook coming out of the Bakken. Uh, you know, Bakken crude was priced at, at roughly $3.25, I think, yesterday. And it's not clear to me that companies um, paid a lot of attention to hedging that basis. And and so they may be actually more exposed than, than we think they are. Um, and so I'm not sure... You know, you said that those companies that have hedged might be the ones that survive. I'm not sure hedging is necessarily going to save the industry, uh, the U.S. industry this time in the way that it has in the past. And those companies that survive are really going to be the ones that that were able to manage their debt and really kind of proactively get out and trim their portfolios uh, and bring in cash for assets that today really wouldn't be able to transact. You know, the seizing up of, of asset markets is leaving companies with fewer and fewer options to to address debt. And so hopefully they got their their financial house in order before, you know, before today. And just one other thing on that. Um, I do think banks are going to require more hedging. Um, that's been sort of, you know, one of the last elements that they really uh, spend a lot of time on is how much a company is hedged. I mean, it, it's a factor whenever they go to, you know, increase their, their uh, revolver or seek some other sort of, of loans and, um, but I do think that banks are going to make that more of a stipulation, if not more um, on a given year, than long further out. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, okay, well, I think we're going to leave it there for now, um, and things may well have changed dramatically by the time we post this. So uh, there's no doubt we'll be revisiting some of these topics in the future. But uh, for now, uh, thank you, Dion. 
My pleasure. And thank you, Noah. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. Please go to our website, energyintel.com, for all of our latest news and analysis during this incredibly challenging time for the energy industry uh, and for the world, quite frankly. Um, So please be safe, everyone, and we'll see you next time. (music) 